you, boy. I see you. Richard.
this belong to somebody? Good afternoon. Good afternoon and welcome to this Sunday gathering of the Baltimore Bible Church. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it is great to be with you on this Lord's Day as we come together to worship our awesome God and to, uh, to be in fellowship with one another. Um, fellowship is different than just hanging out. A fellowship is where um, fellow believers, fellow family members, those who are of the same body come together to build one another up in love to mourn with those who mourn, weep with those who weep, and rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Something that unique that God does as we come together intentionally uh, to do these things and uh, to walk in holiness. So uh, today is another great day for us to do that. Um, so again, welcome. If you're here today as a first-time guest or worshiper with us at Baltimore Bible Church, we are especially grateful that you are here as well. We exist as a church to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, that he has lived a perfect life, that he has died in our place and they offers us salvation and reconciliation back to God. <clears throat> we hope that that message, that good news is clear to you today in the songs that we sing, the prayers that we pray, and the word of God that you hear preached, and that like all of us, that you would turn in repentance and faith and to take hold of this Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. So again, on behalf of all of us, welcome. We're grateful that you're here. If someone um, is looking to take notes so dutifully on their cell phone, um, you won't be able to because I'm holding your phone. Um, and so if this looks like your phone, um, I've got it. Um, so if you want to check your pockets, your purses, I'm not seeing it. There we go. All right, we've got it. We've got someone to come claim. Wonderful. Let's hear for our dear friend here. So grateful for that. Thank you so much. Oh, you sure thing, hon. God has a sense of humor. I lost my voice on Thursday, and then it started to come back, and then... My son had a baseball game yesterday. <laughs> you obviously know how that game went. And uh, I'm <laughs> leading worship. So excited for all of us to be singing with gusto to prepare our hearts for worship. Turn with me to Psalm 10. One of the things that has been so, I know, instructive and helpful for me and as I know for us as a church over the past several years is consecutively walking through the Psalms, God's inspired prayer book, is that there are prayers and insights that are placed before us to grow and to deepen and widen the range of emotions and the range of prayers and the ways by which we approach God. Psalm 10 does not have a superscription to help us understand exactly which situation it's referring to. And that, in a sense, makes it a little bit more universal. But I'm sure the, the question in verse 1, strikes at something that we know experientially. Tell me if you agree in your own heart. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Sometimes it seems like, right, that we are all alone in the things that we face. And that is the psalmist's cry here. <clears throat> what kind of trouble is he talking about? He's talking about the violent oppression of sinful men in power. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, catch this, there is no God. 
verse 11, you can see this repeated even further. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Utter foolishness, right? What is the cry for those of us who look upon this in our current culture and state or as we look across the seas at where these things are taking place for other persecuted believers or other innocents? Verse 12, let these be our words of prayer. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But do you see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your own hands to you, the helpless commits himself. Verse 15, break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. And we see the closing of whom it is that we pray to with these things. The Lord is king forever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline their ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Two reflections as we can move into prayer. One is that we would learn to pray for these things, that we would not be ashamed to ask God to bring justice and to bring judgment on the oppressor. But the second is a gospel call to us as we think about the question at the beginning, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why are you delaying your judgment? Because at some point in time, Jeff Weaver was that man who said there is no God. Jeff Weaver walked in the sins of pride and arrogance that were there. And if God had judged me then, death and hell would have been my destiny. And the same for all of us. So our prayer as believers is twofold. God, break them either in repentance so I may call them brother. Or break them that your justice will not be mocked. But let us not lose that tension, brothers and sisters, when we pray in precatory prayers for we were the ones who stood under that judgment until Christ saved us. Amen. Let's go before the Lord with the complexity of his word to guide our prayers. Almighty God, we come before you today knowing that for decades there have been those who under the guise of lies have torn apart the limbs of babies in their mother's womb. We pray against that today. End it, Father, for the sake of those innocents, for the sake of this people. Bring those doctors, bring those advocates to justice Bring them to salvation. God, may they know what they have done and may they cry and weep. And may you, Jesus, for those who repent, wipe their tears away and say, stand, your sins are forgiven. We commit them 
We commit ourselves, all who commit evil to you, that you would be the wise one to execute justice and mercy. You are the king and the wise one, only one worthy of making these decisions. So we lift them to you now. We offer our hearts, we offer our worship to you today. In Christ's name, amen. Let us stand together and worship this awesome king, our shield and our defender, the Ancient of Days.
standing for the reading of this God's inerrant word. Amen. If you could uh, turn your Bibles back to Psalm 10. Psalm 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In pride the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked, in the haughtiness of his countenance, does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says to himself, I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily Watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself, he will not require it. You have seen it, for you have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. Amen. Amen. You can be seated so we can pray. Let's pray. Oh, Father, this psalm could have easily be written in our day, especially as we've been watching the effects of, of sin and sinful leadership at all levels, all around the world and all across the nation. The reprobate indoctrination 
of our children in our school systems from elementary to higher ed, promiscuous entertainment, deviance of medieval and technological industry, lawlessness encouraged in our streets by the branches of government ordained by God to protect us against it. Churches and families carried about by every wind of doctrine. And then there's a redefinition of marriage, of gender, the invention and acceptance of thousands of bizarre identities, the murder of infants in the womb. And so, Father, we, like the psalmist, could express our dismay and our discouragement from what we see. But then, like the psalmist, we could begin to get a spiritual grip on ourselves and remind ourselves that you are our sovereign God and King, and you are still on your throne. And so, Father, we just ask that you would have mercy. And like Brother Jeff said, Lord, we were in the place of the wicked at one time. But you were gracious to us. You were kind to us. And you went after us. You gave us faith and repentance that we might trust in Jesus as our Savior and our King. You redeemed us from the pit. And we give you all the glory and the honor. And Lord, so we know, Father, that you do see. And you have come to the aid of the downtrodden who've committed themselves to you. You are our eternal king, and you will break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer, and you will seek out the wicked until there are none left. We know that entire nations have perished from your land. And so, Father, we, as a psalmist, acknowledge that you hear the desire of the humble, you strengthen their heart, You've strengthened our heart. You've inclined to our ear. You've vindicated the orphan and the oppressed. And we know one day the man of the earth will no longer cause terror. And so as Jeremiah says, the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. And he will save us. And so, Father, we thank you that you are sovereign. You are in control. You are in charge and we place our trust in you and so father we continue to pray for the flock here at bbc we continue to pray for jason as he recovers we pray for our, our brother luther davis as he awaits surgery on his shoulder we ask that you would just continue to to build up these brothers and encourage them and, and comfort them and heal lord we pray for our pastor George and his wife Jennifer and their family, Lord, we pray for George that he would just continue to labor and strive in the ministry according to the power that works mightily within you, within him, as he leans on the power of Christ and not his own strength. We pray, Father, that our pastor would be a faithful servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. We pray, Lord along with our brother, that he would love his wife, Jennifer, as Christ loved the church, and he would honor her, as Peter writes, as a fellow heir of the grace of life. We pray, Father, that 
Jennifer and George would have the joy of seeing all of their children walking in the truth. What a joy that would be. We pray, Father, for their Aunt Gracie, who is battling cancer. We pray for their niece, Grace, and her daughter. And, um, and just moving here from New York, Lord, we pray that the transition will be smooth. And um, Navea, Lord, that you would just um, help her and um, just the whole family, Lord, to, to be adjusted. Lord, I, moving from one state to another and different surroundings, communities, and d different people, Lord, could be kind of taxing and stressful. We just ask that you would just um, pour out your grace in their lives and in this situation, that you would give wisdom, Lord, and guidance as they parent their adult children. We pray for our brother Kevin, Lord, as he uh, heals Healing of his shoulder, Lord, uh, goes well. He would continue to recover from that surgery. We pray along with him, Lord, that their children, his children, Lord, would find a, a church home. We pray for our sister church, Grace Community Church, Pastor Paul Shirley, for their upcoming baptism service on May the 29th when uh, they have eight new believers scheduled to be baptized. We praise you for that, Lord. And we pray for our missionaries in Argentina, Lord, uh, um, Alexandro and uh, Monica, Lord, for the next pastoral conference and the possibility of helping pastors correct their direction to bring God's life to their churches, Lord, that that would be successful. You would be glorified in, in that endeavor, that they would also find a place to rent and uh, that they uh, were not able to rent the old church building for the residential school and um, planning project, Lord. You would just show them grace as they search for another place to rent. And so, Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to, uh, to pray and that uh, we would uh, um, just roll all of these things, cast all these things, commit all these things to you for your uh, safekeeping and, and your attendance to them, Lord. We know that you do all things right and well, and we trust you, Lord, um, with the lives and the situations of our, our members and, and, and our friends and the missionaries. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, uh, Brother Chuck. It's, uh, it's, it's good to, to be lifted up before the Lord in prayer. Amen. Um, just a couple things that uh, I want to bring to your attention. And uh, first of all, just uh, welcome to those of you who are here uh, maybe for the, the first time or maybe the first time in a, in a while. Uh, we want to welcome you to Baltimore Bible Church. Uh, if this is your first time, we'd like to invite you to stop by our welcome table. Uh, as you walked in the, the front doors and the uh, foyer there in the entrance, uh, there's a table that's there for you. Uh, we have a, a small gift just as our way of saying thank you for being with us today for worship. And uh, we have some members that will be there to answer any questions that you might have uh, about our, our church and be able to, uh, uh, to direct you uh, in, the, in the way that uh, might be uh, uh, helpful uh, for you. Uh, also, I want to let you know that at the end of our service, we'll have some prayer counselors uh, down here in the front. Uh, if you've uh, come in here with the burden on your heart, uh, whether you're a visitor or a member, uh, we'd love for you to, to come up and, uh, and uh, avail yourself of these prayer counselors. They're there, they're there for you and uh, there to lift up uh, your prayer request that you might have uh, on your heart before uh, the Lord as we go before the Lord in, in faith, trusting in him that uh, he hears and answers our prayers. Amen. 
And uh, we don't want to come before the Lord as double-minded men who are unstable in all their ways. We come before the Lord in, in faith, trusting that the Lord hears and answers our prayers. So uh, we'd love to be praying uh, for you. So uh, we have some prayer counselors that will be here uh, up at the front to, uh, to be praying uh, for you. And uh, if you have any questions at all about uh, your eternal security, where will I go when I die? Uh, if you have that question, we'd love to, to, to help you answer that question. Uh, there's only one way uh, to know that uh, your soul will be safe after you breathe your last breath, and that's if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. There is no one else uh, that we can be saved by. There's one name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. It's only through his righteous life, uh, through his substitutionary death on the cross, uh, that we can be saved. He's the only way uh, to the Father. He's the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. So if you're here today and you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ, if you want to know what does that look like uh, to trust in Jesus Christ, how, how do I know if I've truly trusted in Christ? If you have any of those questions, uh, we have some prayer counselors that would love to help you uh, answer those uh, questions. Uh, also, just a, a couple of announcements. We have our, uh, at the same table where we have the, uh, the, the welcome uh, and the, uh, the entrance there at the front, uh, we also have uh, an opportunity to sign up for a couple uh, opportunities for outreach uh, Daniel Teej is uh, doing a, a pre-evangelism uh, event. It's called uh, Movie on the Barn, Movie at the Barn, uh, where he's uh, inviting some of the neighborhood uh, children to come over and watch a Christian film. Uh, so if you'd like to help him out with that, I know that he needs help with... Uh uh, security and maybe passing out snacks and some other things uh, so you can see him at the table afterwards. Uh, also I want to let you know that next week uh, following the service we'll have a, a brief uh, evangelism training and just to uh, let you know about the opportunities that we have coming up at the end of the, uh, the month of June. Uh, we have a, a week of outreach uh, that we're uh, having in, the, uh, in Baltimore and the surrounding community. Uh, many of our members already know what, what that looks like. Some of you may not uh, so I just invite you to come out for that evangelism training. We'll uh, talk to you specifically about what those outreach opportunities are and uh, just walk through the gospel, making sure that we're all on the same page as we go out uh, to spread the, the news of, of life. Um, with that being said, our next section of the service is what we call our BBC Q&A, uh, where we answer various questions with the Word of God. And uh, this week we have the Trushler group uh, that's up for our BBC Q&A. Thank you. Good afternoon, church. Uh, the question for today is, uh, will God allow our disobedience to go unpunished? And the answer can be found in Exodus 34-7. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands? <laughs> Who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin? Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth okay. generations. Exodus I'm so encouraged by the outfit coordination. <laughs> I have trouble matching my own clothes, like top and bottom. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Uh, today is a good day, isn't it? Um, it's particularly a good day for us because I've done the calculation. The uh, 1,290 days have been fulfilled since George said he was going to start preaching from Daniel. 
And so today, it is here. We're going to sing about the Ancient of Days. Now, it's going to take 70 weeks before, or 70 years before we get to chapter 7. Just a little dispensational humor there for you. But um, we've sung this song since the beginning of our church here, the Ancient of Days. Believers sing about this idea. What is, what is the context of the Ancient of Days? King Darius throws Daniel into a lion's den. <laughs> the ways by which evil right men seek to kill and destroy their enemies, right? And it's out of that context that we read these words. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. This dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed, a singular kingdom that will not end. And whose kingdom is that? Jesus Christ's kingdom. Let's stand and praise him. Blessing and honor, glory and power, be unto the ancient of days. From every nation, all of creation, bow before the ancient of days. Every tongue in heaven and earth shall declare your glory. Every knee shall bow at your throne. And worship, you'll be exalted, O God. And your kingdom shall not pass away, O ancient of days. Blessing and honor, glory and power, be unto the ancient of days. From every nation, all of creation bow before the ancient of days. Every tongue in heaven and earth shall declare your glory. Every knee shall bow at your throne. In worship you'll be exalted, O God. Every tongue in heaven and earth shall declare your glory. Every knee shall bow at your throne. In worship you'll be exalted, O God. And your kingdom shall not pass away, O ancient of When trials come, no longer fear, 
For in the pain our God draws near to fire a faith worth more than gold. And there his faithfulness is told. There his faithfulness is told. Some of us come out of the fiery furnace refined for more life in this world. Sometimes that's how we go to heaven in martyrdom where there's total purification. But think about it. In either option, evil doesn't win. God does. Sometimes our weakness of faith makes it hard to even think that we can sing those with confidence. And so that is why we end with this last message of a gospel good news that it is yet not I but Christ in me. It is him who intercedes for us, for our strong faith. And it is he who grants us stronger faith when the time comes for us to stand for his grace and for his glory. Let us remind ourselves and sing to one another to encourage one another, this is what Christ provides for you.
confidence is not in our faith. Our confidence is in Christ. Let us sit down and rest in what he has done on our behalf as we look to hear the, a prayer for the offering, right? Yes. All right. Children, you can be dismissed at this time. Just for the offering, I just saw uh, do's and don'ts. I did this before. Uh, it comes from Matthew uh, 6.19. And it says, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth. That's the don't. But store up your treasures in earth where neither moth nor rust can decay and where thieves cannot break through and steal. For where your heart is, your treasure is also. I just want a companion verse. Uh, I came across in my reading, and it says here, uh, different terminology, but the same thought. It says, make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief, nor, <clears throat> where no thief comes near nor moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what's the message? Uh, we don't invest in anything in this earth. We invest in eternity. And God calls us to be faithful. And when we're faithful, he will reward us. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, Lord, we thank you, Father, that, Lord, you, you've gave of yourself willingly, Lord. It's all because of you we stand today. Lord, we know that you call us to be faithful, not only with our money, but with our time, with everything, the talent you have given us, Lord. We know it's all for your glory. Lord, we take no credit, Father. Everything we have, you have given us. We have nothing we can really call our own, Father. Lord, you have made us rich beyond measure. Lord, not in this life, but really in a life to come, Lord. You died and became poor so that we, as believers, would be rich. So we thank you, Lord, for those here you have called to yourself, Lord. We take no credit in that salvation, Lord. It's you who opened our eyes. It's you who helped us to see. So, Lord, we thank you for your rich grace, your redeeming grace, Lord, uh, for the work you do in our life each and every day, for the sanctification, Lord. You perform in us, Father. I thank you for this congregation. I thank you, Lord, for its growth and 
Lord, I just pray that we just grow in our giving, our commitment to you, Father. And for this, we give you the praise in Jesus' name. I was um, emotionally okay till we sang that song, Yet Not I, but through Christ in me, I, w- I was just choking on the words, but I um, hope I get through this. <clears throat> my name is Logan Cocky. Uh, my wife and I have been coming to BBC for almost two years and have been members here for about a year and a half. Um, I would like my testimony to serve as a warning, especially to the teens and young adults, uh, about spiritual uh, passivity and spiritual apathy. I was born into a Christian home and was a third generation in a local church where the Bible and Jesus were the focus of the congregation. When I was a year and a half old, my father, who was at Westminster Seminary, got sick with schizophrenia. He was then hospitalized for the rest of his life, but even with a sick and broken mind, he loved Jesus with all his heart till the day the Lord took him home. He was always quick to tell Betsy and and me. um, He he was always quick to let Betsy and me know that it was Christ in him who was the hope of glory. Colossians 1.27 seemed to be his favorite verse, and he clung to it. Uh, My father um, stands as proof that the gift of faith can never be lost, just as God told Joshua, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So my mother, a school teacher, raised my brother and my sister and me with the help of the church and family. She was careful that we always were well-fed and cared for. And just as she never neglected to feed our bodies, she also fed us spiritual food the bread of God that came down from heaven and gives life to the world, Jesus Christ. She taught us that God is holy, perfect, without sin, and he loves us and wants to live in us, but he can't because we are selfish sinners. So he sent his son from heaven to earth to to live a sinless life and to take my sin on himself and die on the cross for me so that I don't have to die for my sin. Not only that, but on the third day after he died, he rose from the dead and is now in heaven with the Father. She said that one day I would be in heaven with Jesus if I told him I was sorry for my sin and trusted him to save me. Yes, God would make me holy like Jesus. The Holy Spirit made the spiritual food taste sweet to me, so I swallowed it. I can't remember when, but I was probably four or five years old when I trusted Jesus to save me from my sin. As time went on, I came to believe everything the Bible says. My mother taught me to pray every night before bedtime, especially for my father, and to tell God I was sorry for my sin. 
As I grew older, I was active in youth ministry and was a counselor at our church camp every summer. Everyone who knew me knew that I was a follower of Jesus. I shared the gospel with people in my neighborhood and at school. It was when I, was a, it was when I went away to college that I started to change. I was becoming spiritually passive. There was no more accountability to my mother or the local church. They were 600 miles away. I slowly stopped going to church, reading my Bible, and spending time with the Lord. The big change was in my heart. I was treasuring the things of this world. I was leaving my first love, Jesus, behind. My mother, who loved and served the Lord, died of cancer at the end of the summer of my sophomore year, so I stayed in Baltimore and went to work. For the next 20 years, I lived a life not connected to the local church. I still trusted Jesus, but didn't serve him. I served myself. It was like I got caught in a snare, and the harder I pulled, the tighter the trap got. I had become apathetic to the things of God. All my friends were non-believers. They knew I was a Christian, but I didn't live much differently than them. Christian, listen to this warning from James, the Lord's brother. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Or do you not think that scripture speaks of no purpose, saying he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us? Thanks be to God that he disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. To those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields a peaceful fruit, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So, like J. Vernon McGee, the old radio teacher, used to say about David and his sin with Bathsheba, and God took David to the woodshed. Well, God took me to the woodshed for discipline. To get my attention, he knocked everything out from under me. My wife left me. I experienced severe financial trouble. My house went into foreclosure. My electricity was turned off, and, and my truck that I needed for work broke down. The Lord used many circumstances to convict me of my sin and rebellion against him. There is one in particular that stands out. I went to a party one time, and we were sitting around the dining room table drinking. Conversation came up about a celebrity who was thought to be a Christian but died of an overdose. One person at the table had gone to the funeral. He started mocking Christians and our faith. Immediately, Psalm 1-1 came to mind. Blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. I had done all of these things, and here I was, sitting in the seat of scoffers. I was so ashamed. This experience and others brought me to the place where I turned to the Lord, confessing my sin and seeking his forgiveness. I remember lying down on my face in a puddle of tears, and the Lord heard me. He brought me back to the church that I grew up in. I was loved, discipled, and restored. John 1, uh, 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. Again, a warning. Christian, 
Don't be spiritually complacent. Be active. Live by faith. God told the Romans that if you are living in accord with the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Since the time that the Lord restored me, he has blessed me abundantly. He brought Betsy into my life, and now we love to serve the Lord together with the gifts that he has given us for the church. How great a love is this, that the holy, eternal Son of God should leave his place in heaven and come to earth and to die for sinners like you and me. Thank you, Jesus.
Just in case you didn't know what a song that was that was being played, that was Be Thou My Vision. And I'll just read a couple of the lines from that hymn. First line says, Be Thou My Vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me save that Thou art. Thou my best thought by day or by night, waking or sleeping, Thy presence my light. And just to follow up on the testimony that was given earlier by our brother Logan, Christian is Christ your best thought by day or by night. Is that really the, the, the joy of your heart? Is that the vision of your life? And then I'll read the last line. High King of heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven sun. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. Amen? Amen. Well, let's uh, take our Bibles and finally open up to the book of Daniel. All right? We're in the book of Daniel. This is a series that I've been greatly anticipating for some time now, and I know that many of you share that same excitement with me. And why are we excited for Daniel? Why am I excited for Daniel? I mean, first of all, there's the, uh, the natural excitement about something new. Uh, moving on to a new book is exciting, but it's much more than just that because much of the material that we'll cover in Daniel is really familiar territory for a lot of us. Now, most of us are familiar with the, the fiery furnace, the lion's den, the handwriting on the wall. Actually, there's a number of uh, sayings, uh, even in our English language, that come from the book of Daniel, and people say them all the time and don't even know that they're referring to the book of Daniel. You know, when people talk about, oh, the handwriting's on the wall, they're referring to the book of Daniel. When uh, people say, you know, oh, all men have clay feet, they're referring to the book of Daniel. When we talk about the lion's den, things like that, we're, again, talking about the book of Daniel. And uh, some of those stories were uh, some of the most familiar stories of my childhood. I still remember the, the flannel graphs uh, that we used in Sunday school. And if you don't know what a flannel graph is, you can Google that later. Uh, you might be able to find it in a uh, Christian museum somewhere. You know, what is a flannel graph? Uh, basically, it's like the, the PowerPoint for kids back in the 70s and 80s. That's what it was. So I was familiar with Daniel even through the flannel graph. Uh, but even though we are familiar with these stories, we know how the stories end, it's still inspiring to play back the film. Who, who doesn't appreciate the courage of four teenagers in a foreign land who band together because of their common convictions about the law of God, and they refuse to eat the king's meat or drink his wine? They didn't know how that was going to end. We know how the story ends. They didn't know how that story would end. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. That's a bold move for a number of teenagers who just got kidnapped. And who doesn't feel a sense of triumph when these same young men are standing face to face with the greatest ruler of the known world, and when he demands that they bow down to an image that he's made of himself, they respond to him by saying this in chapter 3, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I mean, there, there's something on the inside of us that just says, yes, that, that's the way that you're supposed to respond. It doesn't matter who you're talking in front of. We must obey God rather than men. And then, of course, there's the calm confidence that Daniel displays when he knew that he was on the menu for a pack of lions. As far as Daniel was concerned, 
The king of the jungle was no match for the king of kings. And the threat of death could not keep him away from his daily prayers. In Daniel chapter 6 and verse 10, it says, Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. He continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Not changing a thing. I'm not going to alter my schedule. I'm not going to close my windows. I'm not going to do it under the cover of darkness. I'm going to fling open my windows and pray to the God of heaven. So why, why do we anticipate the book of Daniel? The book of Daniel is a courageous book. If you're looking for a book that will help you to stand firm in the face of hostility, you need the book of Daniel. We need that. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing. And today, whether you recognize it or not, this is a day of testing. We're, we're being tested. We feel the, the pressure to conform. Our convictions are being tested, whether that's on our, our jobs, in our schools, in our neighborhoods. Even among family and friends, we're being tested. Do you really stand up to your uh, friends, family, to say that, that no, I actually believe what the Bible says is true? <laughs> and, and just because we're, we're, we're family and I, I love you, that I, I can't change what I believe. I, I, I can't... I can't Keep quiet about what I know to be true. The child of God doesn't have to bow, bend, or break, even in the face of hostility, because we worship the same God that Daniel did. What's another reason we're excited about the book of Daniel? The book of Daniel is a mysterious book. Daniel, in the Old Testament, is what Revelation is to the New Testament. It's a book that's filled with mysteries about the future. That word for, for mystery shows up at least eight times in the book of Daniel. Daniel himself is said to be given special, a special ability to understand all kinds of visions and dreams. In Daniel chapter 1 and verse 17, it speaks about that. And it becomes clear as you read through the, the book of, of Daniel that these visions that Daniel is interpreting cover the immediate future as well as the distant future, even to the time of the end. In Daniel chapter 8 and verse 17, after receiving a vision, an angelic being says this in chapter 8 and verse 17, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Chapter 8, verse 19. Behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. In Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4, But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Even the, the, the dream that Daniel interprets for Nebuchadnezzar is about the distant future. It speaks about the, the immediate future, but also about the distant future. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44 says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Daniel is a prophet of God. That's what Jesus calls him over in Matthew chapter 24. He's a prophet, and he speaks about things yet to come mysteries, things that haven't yet come to pass yet, but things that are revealed by the Spirit of, of God. And I'm telling you, there's a whole lot that we're going to learn as we look through the book of Daniel. And as I've been reading and rereading the book of Daniel, I'm looking forward to sharing all that I've been learning through it. And just in case you're wondering, no, I have not changed my opinion on what I believe about the end times, okay? Uh, I've only been, uh, it's only been refined and reinforced through the book of of Daniel. Uh, Daniel anticipates a future for Israel because God is faithful to his covenant. 
Daniel speaks about a time of tribulation, unlike any time that we've seen before. And after that time, he speaks of a resurrection of believers and believers being allotted a portion of the kingdom to come. All that's in the book of Daniel. In chapter 7 and verse 27, it says, Sovereignty, dominion, the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven, meaning that it's on the earth, under the heaven is on the earth, will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. That time is yet to come. That the kingdom under heaven, which is on earth, will be given to the saints of the highest one. So there's a lot of exciting ground to cover in the book of Daniel. And the book of Daniel, uh, just as an aside, uh, we're talking about how it reveals mysteries. Because it reveals so many mysteries, a lot of the critics have found Daniel as their target. Daniel has been uh, attacked much more by the critics than he ever was by the lions. And that's a problem. The, the, The critics find a problem with Daniel because with pinpoint accuracy, he predicts the future. And we can look back to history and read about the things that Daniel predicted before they came to be in exact detail. Just supernatural revelation was given to Daniel to pen things with exact precision. There was a a man by the name of Porphyry uh, who lived in the 3rd century A.D. I mean, this is 300 years after Christ. This guy's around, maybe even uh, less than that. And he decided that he would write a number of books attacking Christianity, 10 to 15 books attacking Christianity. And guess which book out of all books he decided to write against? He wrote against the book of Daniel. Because the book of Daniel, with such force, predicted the future that he couldn't get away from it. If, if, if this book predicts the future, then I must believe it. So, so he had to try to get away from the book of Daniel, and he wrote these uh, books to, to try to discredit the book of Daniel as being written in the century that it was written in. He said, this, this has to be written after the fact. I, I mean, it, it's, it's so detailed, it couldn't have been written before it came to be. But Jesus, again, himself credits the book of Daniel to Daniel as a prophet. Daniel is a prophet of God. So this is a mysterious book. It's a courageous book, but it's also a victorious book, a victorious book. And what do I mean when I say it's a victorious book? It's a book that reminds us that God wins in the end. That's good to know, isn't it? God wins in the end. It would be pretty tough to convince myself to sacrifice myself for a God who was a loser. The God that we serve does not lose. What sense would it make to sacrifice my life for God if all is lost in the end? You know, God is a winner, and it's a good thing to jump on his bandwagon, okay? <laughs> it's a good thing to jump on the bandwagon. We're not talking about the Super Bowl, okay? You know, where you say, I am going to commit to my team whether they, they lose or win. I'm still committed. I'm still rooting for my team. No, when it comes to eternity and uh, the controller of all destiny, you jump on the bandwagon of the one who's going to win. God is going to win in the end. There is no God that can defeat our God. Satan does not win. Man does not win. Elijah said, if Baal is God, then follow him. If he can defeat the God of the Israelites, then follow him. But there is no God who can defeat our God. And we need to know that we're serving the one who controls all of destiny, all of history. He wins in the end. And if you're on God's team, you're on the right team. If you're serving God, you're on the right team. Just to to, to review just some of the titles that are used for God. Seven times God is called the king of heaven which means it doesn't matter how mighty men become, they're all underneath the king of heaven. Daniel 4.26 says it's heaven that rules. 
14 times in the book of Daniel, God is referred to as the most high or the highest one. Nebuchadnezzar came out and he spoke to the, uh, the three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he says, come out, you servants of the most high God. You serve the most high God. How, how did he know that this, their God was the most high God? Because he arrogantly said back in chapter 3 and verse 15, what God is there that can deliver you out of my hands? What God is there that can deliver you from me? And he found out what God there was that could deliver these three boys from him. It was the most high God. He was about to find out. He was going to recognize that this was the most high God. God is also referred to as the great God, the God of gods, the Lord of kings in the book of Daniel. Chapter 2, verse 47, the king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. Your God's kingdom will last forever. And if you're looking for a key verse for the entire book of Daniel, you can find it in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 17. It says this, This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. That's, that's a key statement for the entire book. The Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and he bestows it on whomever he wishes. That's actually repeated three more times in the book of Daniel. Ch turn over to chapter 4 and verse 25. Chapter 4 and verse 25. If you're already in chapter 4 and verse 17, you see that statement there, but it's repeated again in chapter 4 and verse 25. Look at the end of the verse. It says, in seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Look at verse 32, same, same chapter. End of the verse. The Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Flip over to chapter 5. Look at verse 21. End of the verse. The most high God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. That's, a, that's the key phrase, the key statement in the book of Daniel. He's the most high God and he does what he wants to do. He'll pick you up, he'll set you down. He's in control. The same thing said throughout the book in various ways. Chapter 2, verse 21, it says he changes the times and epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He rules over the realm of mankind, does what he wants. Chapter 4 and verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? He doesn't give an account to anybody. All throughout the book of Daniel, God is raising people up and taking them down. Raising them up, taking them down. I counted uh, 91 times in the book of Daniel where there is some explicit, not just, you know, uh, you know kind of cursory glance and you know maybe I could make it fit no explicit statements where God is said to take somebody up or take somebody down take you up and take you out 91 times and we're going to look at all 91 times but not today not all of them today we'll get there eventually as we work through the book of Daniel 91 times listen, listen to these statements the Lord has said to raise up give over reestablish set over magnify prosper raise again bestow set up grant lift up make king or cause to rule he, he lifts men up 
But then on the opposite side, it's also said that God puts to an end, removes, takes away, crushes, destroys, annihilates, completely destroys, deposes, causes to fall, hurls, tramples, shatters, breaks, slays. That's what God does. He'll pick you up. He'll take you out. The world's rulers are merely the chess pieces that God picks up and moves around the earth. They cannot overpower the ultimate plan of God. There's this invisible hand of God that's picking the piece up and moving it around. They can't see that they're being moved around the board. But they can't boast because there's a hand that is moving you. God is in charge. I love how Jesus responded to Pilate when he was standing before him in John 19 and verse 10. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Do do you really think that you're in charge? (laughs) Do you feel like you're in charge? (laughs) You think you're in charge over here? There there is an invisible hand that's moving you back and forth across the board. You're not in charge of anything. And that hand will topple you over whenever he's done playing the game. Whenever he sees fit, he will knock you down. God raised up Pharaoh, as evil as he was. God raised him up, took him down. God raised up Nebuchadnezzar, raised him up, took him down. God raised up Pilate to demonstrate his power, raised him up, took him down. And even in our day, God will raise up evil, tyrannical, dictatorial leaders and rulers for his own sovereign purposes for a time. He'll raise them up and he'll take them down. Does that have any application for us today? You better believe it does. God is sovereign. When you you turn on the news, just remind yourself of that. God is sovereign. You know, just like make a a post-it note. Just kind of stick it up there, you know. So every time you, you flick it on, let me remind myself of who's really in charge over here. God is sovereign. And if you're reading your Bible correctly, You'll even have to admit that God has a plan even for the kingdom of Satan. Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, if you want to flip over there. And uh, just to let you know, you're going to be flipping around a lot today, all right? This, this is an introduction, so uh, we're going to get familiar with Daniel, all right? Daniel chapter 7, look at verse 25. It speaks about this, uh, this ruler who's been raised up, an evil ruler. Look at what he does in chapter 7, verse 25. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And listen to this. They will be given into his hand. This this ruler who speaks out against the saints, speaks out against the Most High, he's trying to make changes in times and laws, and that authority is given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Days are numbered, but it's still granted to him, given into his hands by who? By the the ruler over the realm of mankind who bestows it on whomever he wishes. Martin Luther once said this. He says that even the devil is God's devil. God puts Satan on a leash and only allows him to go so far. He can only do what God allows him to do. God is the one who sets the boundaries in the book of Job. God set the boundaries for Satan. In Job chapter 1 and verse 12, the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that 
he has, speaking about Job, is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. I've got boundaries, Satan, and you can't go any further than this. You're on the leash. You're on the leash. In case of Simon Peter, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Luke 22, 31. Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. He's only going to go so far and no further. Boundaries. There's coming a time when Satan and his kingdom will be totally removed from the earth. He'll be placed out of bounds. In Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44, it says, In those days of the kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. That kingdom is to come. And God is victorious, even over the kingdom of Satan. Satan is not this kind of equal and opposing force to God. he's, He's on a leash. So Daniel is a victorious book. It's a mysterious book. It's a courageous book. And that's just the introduction to the introduction, all right? Flip back to Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. We'll read through verse 6 here. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the king of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God and He brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with wisdom and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration, from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Why don't you bow with me for a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and my Father, we are so grateful for this book. My Father, we pray that you would use it in our lives. My Father, that you would help us to to follow after the God of Daniel, that we recognize that there is a God who rules over the realm of mankind, who does what he wishes, and Father, that we can rest in your sovereign care for us, even in the midst of a hostile culture, society. Now, Father, I, I pray that we would lift our eyes up to the hills where our help comes from, our help comes from the Lord, and now, Father, I pray that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Like I said, this is an introduction today, so this is more of a Bible study than a sermon. But uh, let's take a look at the theme of Daniel. We've already introduced it to you. The Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes. That's the theme for the book of of Daniel. So in one sense, we're not surprised when we read, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of, of Babylon. Because that's what God is doing all throughout the book. Setting people up, taking them down. But in another sense... We are surprised. Why? Because Judah has a special relationship with God. Covenant relationship. That needs an explanation. How could a covenant people experience the kind of devastation that Judah is experiencing? It's because they are a covenant people. That's why. And Daniel explains that for us over in chapter 9. Why don't you turn over there? Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, starting at verse 1, we find that Daniel gets his hands on a copy of the book of Jeremiah in the first year of Darius, who's a Medo 
Persian king. Listen to what he says, Daniel chapter, chapter 9, starting at verse 1. It says, in the first year of Darius, the king of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the numbers of the years which, were, which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Listen to what he says. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame, as it is this day, to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, and all the countries to which you have driven them away, because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. That's the explanation for why Judah was being given into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Why? It's because of their unfaithful deeds which they had committed against the Lord. Drop down to verse 11. It says, Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out among, on us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God. For we have sinned against him. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law, turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God. For we have sinned against him. Look over at verse 14. It says, Therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds, which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. The reason that Judah was experiencing calamity being cast out of their home was because of the sins that they committed. And it would be helpful to get a little bit of the history to understand exactly what's going on. But uh, for the history, we're going to turn all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. I, I told you we're going to be flipping around. Genesis chapter 12. Just to give you a history of uh, the land and uh, where did all this start. Look at Genesis chapter 12. Look at verse 1. says, now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I'll make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And over in uh, chapter 13, if you flip over one page or so, chapter 13, look at verse 14. God makes the promise more specific. It says, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. That land which is Israel belongs to Abraham and to his descendants forever. In verse 17 of the same chapter, it says, arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. That was an unconditional promise that was made to Abraham. I'm going to give you this land, and it's going to belong to you and your descendants forever. That cannot be changed. But there was a condition regarding which descendants would occupy the land. The, the people 
who occupied that land. Had to be a holy people. And that's where the Mosaic Covenant comes into place. Why don't you flip over to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. You have Moses urging the children of Israel to take possession of the promised land. It's, it's called the promised land because it was promised. Look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1. Look at verse 8. Deuteronomy 1 verse 8. It says, See, I've placed the land before you. Go in, possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So it's re reiterating the promise that was already made. This was land that was promised to your father Abraham and to his descendants after him. So he's talking about the same land. But he talks about the conditions regarding which descendants would occupy that land. Flip over to chapter 27 of Deuteronomy. Which, which descendants of Abraham would occupy this land? Deuteronomy 27, look at verse 1. It talks about the conditions of which descendants would be in this land. It says, Then Moses and the elders of Israel charged the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today. So it shall be on the day when you cross the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God gives you, that you shall set up for yourself large stones and coat them with lime, and write on them all the words of this law when you cross over, so that you may enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, a land flowing with milk and honey as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. So again, there's no question that the land would be given to Abraham's descendants. The only question is, whether or not these would be the descendants that would receive it. That's the question. Chapter 28, look at verse 1. It says, Now it shall be if, that's the condition, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. But what happens if they didn't obey? Look at verse 15. Chapter 28. But it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And what do those curses look like? Look at verse 25, same chapter, 28, verse 25. It says, The Lord shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You'll go out one way against them, but you will flee seven ways before them. And you'll be an example of terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Drop down to verse 32. It says, your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people while your eyes look on and yearn for them continually, but there will be nothing you can do. Drop down to verse 36. It says, the Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone. You shall become a horror, a proverb, and a taunt among all the people where the Lord drives you. So what is he saying? You're going to be driven out of this land. Your sons and your daughter are going to be given to another people there will be nothing that you can do about it those were the stipulations of the mosaic covenant and the job of the old testament prophets was basically to be a, a danger sign you know the flashing red light saying danger don't come here don't break the law of god if you if you break the law of god we'll be kicked out it's like a siren that was blaring don't violate the command of god we want to be the descendants that actually occupy this land that's what moses does back in a if you flip over to chapter 30 of Deuteronomy. Look at verse 15. Listen to what Moses says here. Verse 15, he says, See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity, and that 
I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes, his judgments, that you may live and multiply, that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you're entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. And all the prophets that followed Moses were basically reminding Israel of the covenant. Don't disobey the covenant. We won't stay in the land if we transgress the covenant. That's what Amos was doing in the 8th century B.C. It says in chapter 4 and verse 2, The Lord has sworn by his holiness, Behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. He was basically saying, uh, I'm reminding you of the covenant. God said he'll rip you out of here if you don't do what's right. Habakkuk in uh, 7th century B.C., speaking to the southern kingdom, he says, Look among the nations, observe the astonished wonder, because I'm doing something in your days you would not believe it if you were told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, referring to the Babylonians, the fierce and impetuous people who will march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. Flip over to Isaiah chapter 39. Isaiah was also a a prophet around the the 7th century B.C. as as well. Chapter 39, just reminded of, of this chapter 39 and verse 5 says then isaiah said to hezekiah hear the word of the lord of hosts behold the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to babylon nothing will be left says the lord and some of your sons who will issue from you whom you will beget will be taken away and they will become officials in the palace of the king of babylon then hezekiah said to isaiah the word of the lord which you have spoken is good for he thought for there will be peace and truth in my days, at least it's not going to come upon me. Selfish. And then there's the prophet Jeremiah. Flip over to Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah was prophesying to Judah in the 6th century B.C., right up through the time of the exile. And he was basically saying, guys, the time's up. Time's up, guys. We've been warning you. We've been warning you. We've been warning you. You haven't listened. You haven't taken heed to our words, and now all that we've prophesied is about to come upon you. Chapter 25, look at verse 1. The word came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. That was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah, to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, These 23 years, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, again and again, but you've not listened nor inclined your ear to hear, saying, "Now turn now everyone from his evil way and from the evil of your deeds and dwell on the land which the Lord has given to you and your forefathers forever and ever. And do not go after other gods to serve them, to worship them. Do not provoke me to anger with the work of your hands, and I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, in order that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord. I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations round about, and I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of joy, the voice of gladness, 
the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones, and the light of the lamp, this whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. That was the punishment for the covenant violators. And that's what Daniel was reading while he was writing his prophecy. God, this is all happening to us because it's exactly what was foretold. It's because you're faithful to the covenant even though we're not. And you've ripped us out of the land just like you said you would. In Jeremiah 22, it says, Many nations will pass by the city and they will say to one another, Why has the Lord done this to this great city? Then they will answer, Because they forsook the covenant of the Lord their God and bowed down to other gods and served them. And just as Jeremiah predicted, the nation was defeated, the land became desolate. There were three separate deportations, 605, 597, 586 B.C., where groups of people were taken out of Judah. And in the first, Daniel was swept up in it, taken away from his land as a consequence of the nation's disobedience. And you know what? Israel, as a nation, has never obeyed the covenant. Israel, as a nation, has never obeyed the covenant. And that's why Jeremiah said they needed a new covenant. The the covenant of of Moses you can't keep. You keep violating it. There's no way that you're going to be able to stay in the, the land and receive all the blessings that I've promised to Abraham. There's no way that you're going to be able to do it because you're not the kind of people, the kind of descendants that I can put in this land. They didn't need the old covenant. They needed a new covenant. And that's exactly what Jeremiah speaks about. Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31. Take a look at verse 31 of Jeremiah 31. Listen to what Jeremiah says. He says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. When he brought them out of the land of Egypt, what covenant did they receive? It was the Mosaic covenant. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all will know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. God is saying that this is the covenant that I'm going to make with my people, Israel. I will forgive their iniquity, I will remember their sin no more, and I will bless them with the promise of Abraham. And brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, guess what? You are part of that new covenant. We're we're, we're not part of a covenant by works of the law, by our obedience. It's a covenant that we participate in through faith in Jesus Christ. The the history of, of Israel proved that the nation would never be able to obey the covenant of Moses. They could never become the kind of people that would permanently occupy the land and receive the blessings of God. Why? Because of their disobedience. They've never occupied all of the land. They've never experienced the full blessings of God, even until this day. And in the same way, the entire history of humanity demonstrates that not one of us has been able to fully please God the way that he desires us to in order to gain access to heaven. The only person who's ever 
perfectly live before God as the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Truly God and truly man. God in the flesh, always pleased the Father. And the only way that any of us will be able to inherit eternal life is through faith in him. He lived the life that we could not live before God. He died the death that we deserved before God. And if we turn from our sins and trust in him alone, he will forgive us our sins and remember our iniquities no more. He'll give us eternal life. And as many as received him, the Bible says, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. That's how we become part of this new covenant. It's through faith and it's guaranteed to us through the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant, the mediator of a better covenant. It's a new covenant that makes a people who will inherit the promises. Ezekiel the prophet, who also wrote during the exile, spoke about the same covenant. In Ezekiel 36, verse 26, he says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh, give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So the promise is still there. The promise is still there. But it's what kind of people will be there. The promised land is still coming. But the only way that Israel or anyone else makes it there is by looking to Christ. In the Old Testament, they looked forward to the promise that was to come. And today we look back to the promise that has already come. And the book of Daniel even directs us to that same eternal hope that we have in Jesus Christ. In Daniel 7 and verse 13, we're introduced to the Son, to one like a Son of Man, who is none other than Jesus Christ. Jesus is even spoken of in the book of Daniel. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion. I'm telling you, Daniel is going to be an exciting book. There's a lot of history behind this book. But what about the man, Daniel? What about the author? We know that he was a, a victim of Babylonian captivity, taken in the, the first of those three deportations to Babylon in the third year of the, the reign of King Jehoiakim. But besides that, we don't really know much about the personal history of, of Daniel. Before he was captured, we don't really know anything about Daniel. He doesn't make his personal story the focus. He doesn't even tell us who his parents are. But even that tells us something about his character, doesn't it? What, what does that tell us? It tells us that he was a, a person of incredible maturity. If, if I was kidnapped and I had the opportunity to write a book about it, I'm confident that I'd have a whole lot to say about my personal history and what happened before I was captured, my personal struggle, my mental anguish, my emotional trauma. You know, I'd sue for you know, emotional distress. But that's not what Daniel does. He doesn't even make his own personal circumstances the issue. He was kidnapped as a teenager and doesn't even talk about it. He speaks about the distress for the nation, not just for himself. He's a person of incredible maturity. He also mentions this uh, captivity. And uh, in speaking about this captivity, it's also mentioned that he's a person of, of Jewish nobility. Because that's who Babylon captured first. They, they wanted people to work in the king's court. So where are you going to go to find people to work in the king's court? You're going to go to the king's court. So, so they went to Judah to find people who were of nobility, royal people, to say, hey, I want you to work for me. Because you already know what the, the job description is. They wanted the best, the brightest from Judah. And Daniel would have been connected to a royal line, a royal tribe. If you remember, the, the southern kingdom of Judah was made up of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. 
Both tribes had loyalty, uh, royalty in their, in their background. Uh, the first king of Israel was Saul, who came from the tribe of Benjamin. And the second king of Israel came from the tribe of Judah. And those were the southern tribes, the, the, the south. So here you have Daniel coming from a royal tribe, and he actually comes from the tribe of, of Judah. He's identified with Judah throughout the book. So he's a, a person of Jewish nobility. He's also a person of great potentiality. Uh, the Bible lets us know that he was physically attractive, mentally sharp. Again, he was kidnapped from his family and as a teenager. At the age of opportunity, you know, according to uh, uh, ancient documents, they uh, would train people from 14 to 17. That was like the age that they wanted to grab people, and Daniel would have been in that age group, 14 to 17 years old. They believed that they could change his mind, but Daniel was already fixed and resolute by the time they got him. He's also a person of unassailable integrity. In Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8, Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself. And over in uh, chapter 6, it lets us know that uh, those who tried to attack him said, we're not going to get anything on Daniel because, you know, he's, he's, he follows the letter of the law. He's doing everything right. The only way that we're going to get him in, is in relationship to the law of his God. That's the only way that we can take him down because he's, he's always doing the right thing. He was a person of outstanding ability. In uh, Daniel chapter 1 and verse 17, it says that uh, he uh, excelled in every branch of literature, wisdom, intelligence, knowledge, even understanding visions and dreams. We know that at least one of the traits that set him apart was he was a man who, of devoted spirituality. He was a person of prayer. After hearing the, the wise men would be slaughtered, he asked if he could uh, help the king out by interpreting his dream. But the first thing that he did was he gathered his friends for a prayer meeting. You know, let's go to the Lord in, in prayer. Daniel chapter 6, he, he prayed three times daily, it says. He was a person of genuine humility. He didn't give himself the credit for his abilities. In chapter 2 and verse 23, he says, To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you. Chapter 2 and verse 30 speaks to the king and he says, It's not because of any wisdom residing in me. It's not about me. He's a person of genuine humility. Remarkable generosity. Chapter 2 and verse 49, Daniel made request of the king and that he would appoint Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration. You know, he was being elevated and he turns around and he says, I want my friends to be elevated with me. You know, as a person of generosity. He was a, a gracious person. even extended grace to the rulers that were over him. These, these pagan rulers. You know, uh, Daniel spoke to, uh, uh, to, the, to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, you know, even when he knew that he was going to be uh, a judge, he says, oh, if only it were somebody else, I don't want to see you judged. In chapter 6, after he's been thrown in the lion's den, he doesn't turn to the king and, he's, and say, uh, you know, oh, king, I wish you would die today. He turns to the king and he says, oh, king, live forever. <laughs> he's a person of incredible generosity. And he's also a person of faithful consistent, consistency. From the beginning of the book to the end of the book, we just see a faithful, consistent witness for over 70 years. Daniel 121, it says Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. According to chapter 9, he's making an observation that 70 years have passed. So it's been over 70 years that he's been in Babylon, and he's been consistent all the way through. Actually, one writer says this, Daniel is one of those rare individuals in Scripture about which nothing negative is recorded. In fact, he had an outstanding reputation among his contemporaries for righteousness and devotion to God. Ezekiel, the prophet, in chapter 14, says that Daniel was a righteous man. Puts him in the same category as Job and 
and Noah. And this was of a contemporary, somebody who was living during his day. He says he belongs in that category. He's a, a righteous man. There's nobody like him. And we have a lot to learn from Daniel, both the man and his message. And what is the message? The Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and he bestows on it whomever he wishes. And Daniel demonstrates what it looks like for a person of faith to live in the midst of a hostile and anti-God culture. And we need that. And just to give you a quick, quick peek at, at where we're, we're going, okay? Just to tell you about the structure of the book, okay? There's a couple ways that you can divide up the book. Uh, one of the easiest ways to, to divide the book between chapters 1 and 6 and 7 through 12. In chapters 1 through 6, you have the personal history of Daniel and his friends. In chapters 7 through 12, you have the prophetic history that's laid out for us in, in four visions that Daniel sees of four beasts, a ram and a goat, 70 weeks in the end times. You know, those are the four visions that Daniel has in uh, chapter 7, 8, 9, and then 10 through 12 is all one vision. So there's these four visions that Daniel has. So that's an easy way to kind of divide up the book. But that's not all that we see in the book of Daniel. There, there's another way that this book could be divided up. Uh, some of you might have heard that the, the Bible was translated from three languages. Hebrew, Greek, and what? Aramaic. Actually, in the book of, of Daniel, there is a large section that is in Aramaic. Daniel chapter 2, verse 4 through Daniel chapter 7 and verse 28 is in another language. It's in the language of Aramaic. The other sections are in Hebrew, but this large section in the middle is in Aramaic. And when you examine that Aramaic section, there's definite parallels. There's a, a structure that's being presented. Uh, it's called a, a chiastic structure where the the opposite sides mirror one another. It's like a sandwich where you got the, the bread in the front and the bread at the end. It's like mirroring one another. Chapter 2 and, verse, and chapter 7 mirror one another. In Daniel chapter 2, there's the four pieces of a statue that represents four kingdoms. In Daniel chapter 7, there's four beasts which represent four kingdoms. They mirror one another. Chapter 3 and chapter 6 belong together. In chapter 3, the Hebrew boys defy the edict of the king and are thrown into the furnace. In chapter 6, Daniel defies the edict of the king and he's thrown into the lion's den. They're mirroring one another. And then you have chapter 4 and chapter 5 that mirror one another. So it's kind of working from the outside in. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 mirror one another. Daniel uh, 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 translates and interprets the, the King Nebuchadnezzar's vision and he is judged. And then in chapter 5, he translates the writing on the wall, and Belshazzar is judged. Both judgments come in chapter 4 and chapter 5, mirroring one another. Nebuchadnezzar actually repents. Belshazzar does not repent. It's kind of interesting when you look at uh, uh, the way that Daniel speaks to Nebuchadnezzar. He's saying, you know, oh, king, if it was only somebody else. Belshazzar, when he speaks to him, he says, king, keep your gifts for yourself. <laughs> And uh, Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of that time when he's judged, he stands up and he says, I praise the God of heaven. Belshazzar gave no praise to God at all. The point of this section is to demonstrate that the entire world is underneath the rule of God, the Most High. That's the chapters 2 through 7. So you can look at those Aramaic, that, that Aramaic section and divide it up that way. And... Uh, where, where are we going to go with all this? How are we going to put all these sections together? Here, here's where we're going to go. Chapter 1, we have Daniel's personal history and an introduction. Chapter 2 through 7, that Aramaic section, we have the sovereignty of God over the, the nations. 
And then chapter 7 is kind of like a transitional chapter because chapter 7 through 12 are those four visions of Daniel, which we spoke about before, and it reveals God's prophetic plan for his people, Israel. So, so that's how we're going to divide up the book. Chapter 1, personal history and introduction. 2 to 7, sovereignty of God over the nations. 7 through 12, and like I said, there's overlap there. There's God's prophetic plan for his people, Israel. In uh, chapter 7, it lets us know that the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom. And then the book ends in chapter 12 and verse 13, where Daniel is told to go your way. You will enter into rest and rise again. You're going to die, Daniel, but you're going to come back up. And you will be allotted a portion at the end of the age. The kingdom is coming, and guess what, Daniel? You're not going to miss it. You're going to be raised up to enter into that kingdom that's being prophesied. So what does all that mean for me today as a believer? I know we went through a lot of material. What, is, what does all that mean for me? Daniel demonstrates what it looks like to live in the midst of a hostile, anti-God culture because we know that God wins in the end. That's what the book of Daniel is going to show us. That's the purpose of the book of Daniel, that we would know how to live even in a hostile culture because we know that in the end, my God wins. We serve a God who dwells in the heavens and does whatever he pleases among the realms of mankind. So it doesn't, doesn't matter what's going on on the stage of history. We know that God is overall moving the pieces exactly where he wants them, and the book of Daniel kind of peels back the curtain a little bit so we can see that God is at work. God is a faithful God. We can trust in him. We can rest in his sovereignty. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you, God, so much for uh, this opportunity that we've had to just introduce ourselves to the book of Daniel. Uh, there's so much more uh, that we could talk about, Lord, and uh, Father, we pray that uh, you would use these things, Lord, to uh, give us confidence, uh, help us to be able to, to speak about these uh, things that we read in, in Scripture with uh, uh, just uh, more boldness, Lord, uh, Father, that we would understand how all these things fit and uh, how we can uh, have courage even in, in our day. Uh, Father, we know that we live in a, in a world where uh, the believers aren't ruling, uh, where the, the saints of the highest one haven't yet been granted that kingdom. Uh, but Father, we look forward to the day when the Son of Man will come back, when Jesus Christ will return, when the kingdom will be turned over to him, and he will gather all of his saints alive and those that have already passed on to enter into that kingdom with him. Uh, Father, we look forward to that day. We are the citizens of heaven. We look forward to our king who is going to return. We're eagerly anticipating the day when Christ returns to claim what belongs to him, the rightful ruler. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. Amen. Again, uh, just to let you know, there will be uh, uh, some prayer counselors up here in the front. If you have uh, uh, any uh, uh, needs that you'd like to be prayed for, if you'd like to talk to somebody about your salvation, make sure you stop by the table. Uh, uh, outside at the uh, the foyer uh, regarding the uh, the scatter week, our evangelism week. God bless you. You're dismissed. <laughs>